Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Today I want to talk to you about how to survive the great tribulation. How to survive the great tribulation. A few weeks ago, uh, one of my daughters asked what that I would be preaching on that Sunday. Uh, she wasn't really concerned about the topic. What she was really asking is, Dad, are you going to tell a story about me during your sermon? I answered the question she should have been asking is what I was going to preach on. And I told her, I said, we're going to start a conversation about the end of the world. And she said, well, I'm going to be sick that day. I'm not going to church. Which makes sense. You know, maybe, maybe some of you feel that way. And you'd rather not think about how the world is going to end. Because when you think about the end of the world, you probably have some um, pessimistic ideas about what it's going to look like. Maybe you envision a picture like this of like the whole world just kind of falling apart and you got fires and you see all of the, the main uh, landmarks of the world just being destroyed and you got planes and you got explosions in the dark and maybe you envision uh, something like this, uh, this lady on a dragon beast that's got a bunch of heads and horns and that's kind of creepy. Um, straight out of the book of Revelation, if you read it literally, that's kind of what it looks like. Or maybe you think about the Left Behind series. How many of you led, read the Left Behind series? Maybe you think about that. Or maybe the Left Behind movie, you're not a reader, so you watch Kirk Cameron. Or Nicolas Cage. I haven't seen this one. Is this one any good? Well, mixed reviews. We'll have to look at Rotten Tomato on that. So, so uh, here, here's my question. Uh, what... What makes you think, where did you get this idea that the world is going to, history is going to culminate in this destructive, fiery, dark, just terrible way? Where did you get that idea? Uh, most of us have been trained in what's known as premillennial dispensationalism. You might want to write that down. There'll be a quiz at the end. Premillennial dispensationalism. Now, I'm going to give you kind of the timeline of the culmination of history according to premillennial dispensationalism. And let's see if this kind of tracks with what you've been taught through Sunday school and Bible learning. Uh, now, there's a little bit of variance depending on what church you grew up in, but by and large, this is kind of the way that most people view the culmination, the unfolding of history. The world's gonna grow increasingly evil and depraved and destroyed and destructive and just bad and bad and bad. And, and the poor little old church, we're gonna do our very best to change things, but the gospel just doesn't have the power to really redeem all of mankind and what's going on in the world. And so on the bottom of the ninth, right before all hell breaks loose, Jesus is gonna come back in some sort of like a secretive, uh, co-opted, you know, uh, like a, just this covert operation. And he's gonna Star Trek style rapture us from the earth into heaven. He's going to save us from all the calamity that's about to take place. Sometime in this, this time frame, a, a temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. They're going to restart all the sacrifices. And in the midst of this, something sacrilegious is going to happen in the temple. And that's going to mark the beginning of the end. And all hell is going to break loose. And there's going to be wars. And there's going to be earthquakes. And there's going to be famines. And the stars are going to fall out of the sky. And the sun's going to stop shining. And just all sorts of just like cataclysmic, apocalyptic type of events are going to happen. And then at the end of seven years, Jesus is going to come back into flesh as a warrior, and he's going to do battle with all the evil, rebellious people, and uh, he's going to win this war. He's going to tie Satan up and uh, throw him in a pit, 
And Satan's going to be in this pit for a thousand years where, in which Jesus is going to rule on the earth for a thousand years of peace and prosperity. At the end of a thousand years, uh, Satan will be loosed and he's going to gather up all the nations. There's going to be one final war. Jesus is going to squash that instantaneously and then he's going to throw all of the evil, rebellious, Satan, death, everything else in the lake of fire and then we'll enter into the eternal kingdom. Is that kind of track with what most of you guys learned? Okay. Now, the Bible tells us to pray for the return of Christ. And if that's our vision of how the world is going to unfold, how, how history is going to culminate, um, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to be very hopeful, very optimistic, very eager about those events because that sounds really intense and scary and the stuff of nightmares. Um, so where does this vision, where does this come from? Many of the Bible teachers that promote that idea, uh, one of the key passages they use is the passage that we've been studying. And so today, this is what I want to do. I want to show you that their interpretation of this passage is misinformed. And I'm going to show you that the Great Tribulation is not something that's going to happen in our future. It's actually something that's already happened, that in the distant past, and just I want to remind you that we will experience trials and tribulations. There's no doubt about it, but the best is yet to come for us in Christ. And we should have, all of us in the church should have a victorious and optimistic vision and view of the culmination of history because as time marches on, the church will survive, the kingdom of God will advance to all corners of the earth, the gospel will save the world, redeem mankind, Jesus will come back as promised, uh, and uh, Jesus will save his church and advance his kingdom, just like he promised and just like history has proven. So let's all stand together, Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of this house. A man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter, for those will be the days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, and you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this day. Thank you for my friends that have gathered here, and I pray a blessing on each and every one of them. We all come here, and we're in need of something, and many of us are facing what feels like it's the end of the world. I pray you'll remind us today that what feels like the end isn't the end, it's just the beginning. And that for those of us who call you Lord and Savior, that history unfolds, it, it progresses cyclically, ebbs and flows, trials and tribulations, but you are accomplishing for us a great mercy, great gifts of grace. Lord, that we will be victorious in your name. And so this isn't the end, Lord, whatever it is we're carrying in here, it's just the beginning of labor pains. And Lord, through these contractions, through these problems, through these pains, you're going to deliver us into a better and brighter age. Lord, I pray you'll convince us of that today so that we might walk boldly, confidently, victoriously in this world. We have nothing to be afraid of. 
We have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to be in despair about. You are Christ the King today, forevermore. Lord, I pray as uh, we gather around your word that you'll speak to us. Lord, that you'll speak through me. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment and just pray for the people around you. Pray for the people that are watching online. Pray for the people that you know that are struggling with sickness or anxiety or depression or marital problems. Pray for our nation that's heartbroken over all the senseless killing and evil that's going on in our world. Take a moment, pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation. Abomination of desolation. Uh, Many people read this to mean at some point in the future, Jews will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and they'll reinstate, reinstitute daily sacrifices. Then something sacrilegious will happen in that temple and that is going to mark the begin, beginning of what's known as the Great Tribulation. <clears throat> but did Jesus, is Jesus really talking about some distant future event? I want you to see something. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing there where it should not be. And then that's the end of a quotation. And then you see in parentheses, let the reader understand. In the whole gospel of Mark, this is Mark's only editorial comment. This is the only time he puts parentheses on something. He steps out of the narrative, and as the narrator, he says to the reader, specifically, understand what I'm saying. And so that suggests that what Mark is talking about here, what he's conveying that Jesus said about an abomination that causes desolation, this is something that their readers, the first century, the original audience of this document, that they would understand, that they would know what he was talking about. So what is the abomination of desolation? Let's remember the context. The day before this, the day before Jesus said this, he went into the temple, you remember, and uh, he was so furious, and he started flipping over tables and pushing people out of their chairs and throwing people out of the temple. He says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer, but all you corrupt, self-righteous religious leaders, you have made it a den of thieves. And he so he clears out the temple. The next day he comes back, and the whole day, which is this day that we're in, the whole day prior to this, Jesus is condemning the self-righteous, self-obsessed temple rulers. They were supposed to produce an abundant harvest for God that would bless the nations. Instead, all they produced was stinking fruit. And you remember the story, at the end of this day, uh, Jesus watches a little widow lady, and she doesn't have any money. She puts the last two copper coins that she has to her name, she puts it in the temple offering, and it makes Jesus furious. Because these self-righteous, self-obsessed religious leaders, they should have been taking care of this widow. That's what God wanted them to be, that kind of people. Instead, they allowed this widow to give her very last two coins in order to make themselves richer. It was, it made Jesus sick to his stomach. And so he, he spends the whole day condemning them. He's saying, okay, uh, all of this is going to be, it's going to end in destruction. You're condemned. You're doomed to hell. Nothing can save you. And so with hot tears in his eyes, 
Jesus says this, and this is what happens immediately before he begins to teach the disciples about the end of the age. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Here's the, here's the key part. See, your house is left to you what? Desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. And so this is what Matthew and Mark are communicating to us and to the original leaders. The temple system and the leaders in the temple were so corrupt and depraved that it disgusted Jesus. It was an abomination to him. To the point that God removed his anointing from that place and from those people. Leaving the temple and Jerusalem desolate. Forcing them to live with the destructive consequences of their sinful behavior. Culminating in the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple 40 years later in AD 70 which marked the end of the temple age. And so when Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, understand the end is near. What he's talking about is the corruption of the temple leaders caused the abomination which forced Jesus and God's spirit to leave its anointing and its protection over this place and over these people. Josephus was a Jewish historian around the same time. He lived in the first century he saw the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and Jerusalem. Now listen to what he said. Jerusalem would be taken and the temple destroyed when it had been defiled by the hands of the Jews themselves. Goes on from there to talk about some of the despicable practices, especially in the last uh, AD 60 to AD 70, all the priests were doing in the temple. He, he talked about all the corruption and, and these people, they got so angry with God because they felt like God had abandoned them and they were being oppressed by these Roman people, and there was no hope. So they got so angry with God, they started doing things they knew were wrong. Josephus talks about that, and then he ends this segment by saying this, and this seems to me to have been the reason why God, out of his hatred for these men's wickedness, rejected our city, and as for the temple, he no longer esteemed it sufficiently pure for him to inhabit therein, but brought the Romans upon us and threw a fire upon the city to purge it. And brought upon us our wives and our children slavery as a desirous to make us wiser by our calamities. So Jesus teaches, Josephus affirms that the abomination of desolation that that would that uh, that caused a great tribulation was not some distant future event that involves Russia and and uh, China and Black Hawk Black Hawk helicopters. Instead, the abomination and the tribulation all happened in and around A.D. 70, which is confusing because we've been taught that all this stuff is future events, and when you watch the news, when you get on your Twitter feed, it kind of looks like we're inching towards a great tribulation. It kind of appears like things are not getting better. They're getting a whole lot worse. Amen? Kind of feels that way. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, plagues, persecution, abomination, and desolation. Just this last week, over 20 people killed in an elementary school in Texas. The week before that, there were two other active shooter events here in our country. Our corrupt politicians seem more interested in securing Ukraine, sending $40 billion over there, than they are interested in securing our schools or our streets. All this breaks my heart, and it makes me angry, right? So, so what's going on? 
Let me explain what's happening. History rhymes. It's cyclical, okay? But this is what I believe. It's cyclical in a positive direction, okay? So, so let me explain what's happening. We live in a nation that was once historically prosperous and blessed. Not because America is the new Israel. That's not the case. Instead, it's because America operated in agreement with God's created order and natural law. We were blessed as a result of that. But over the years, we took the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse, took prayer out of school, we took purity out of the culture, we took sanctity out of marriage, we took humanity out of the preborn child, we took masculinity out of men, we took femininity out of women, we took absolute out of truth, we took the Sabbath out of Sunday, we took sin and hell out of the pulpit. And as a result, God took his covering off of our nation. And so our house is left desolate. And we are forced as a nation to deal with the destructive consequences of our depraved behavior. What we are experiencing as a nation is judgment. So what is the Christian response? Look what Jesus says. Luke chapter 21, beginning of verse 20. This is a parallel passage. Luke is is telling us the same uh, events that Mark is telling us about. Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that the desolation has come. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the country must not enter it. And so Jesus told his his followers, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, that's a sign that you know the abomination that causes desolation has happened. The removal of God's protection over these people in this place has happened. And so what you need to do, the, 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 the end of the age has come. What you need to do is flee. Mark chapter 13, verse 15, 16. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his coke. He says, don't, don't stay, don't fight. If you're on the rooftop, in those days, people, they didn't have air conditioning. When they got hot, they would go up on the roof, and that's where they, it was like, kind of like their deck. They didn't have stairs on the inside. They had stairs on the outside of their house. And so they say, okay, you're on your rooftop, and you see an army surrounded Jerusalem, Don't go down the stairs and back into the house. Go down the stairs. Don't get any of your possessions. Don't get any of your belongings. Don't get your wedding photos. Don't get your kid's tooth that they pulled out when they were three years old. Don't do any of that. Instead, flee to the hills. If you're out in the field and you see this army that's surrounding Jerusalem, that's a sign the abomination that causes desolation has happened. Don't go into the city walls. Don't go back to your house. Instead, just immediately flee for the mountains. So what happened? A.D. 64, A.D. 65, a revolt broke out in Jerusalem against the Romans, and the Jews took back the city of Jerusalem, which hadn't happened in a couple hundred years. So now they're in charge of the city of Jerusalem. Rome's not having that, so they sent an army to take back the city, and they began in A.D. 66, a siege around the city. The whole army surrounded the city, nothing in, nothing out. But something weird happened, and history doesn't tell us what happened, but the siege only lasted for a couple weeks. And then the army pulled back. They just left, which is totally un- unheard of. And, and there's not, history doesn't tell us why it happened. At which point, many Jews in the countryside that lived around Jerusalem, what they did, which was common knowledge in this day, this is what you did if ever an enemy comes against your people, they went inside the city walls. Jerusalem had very thick, very tall city walls. They were very heavily guarded and protected inside the city wall. So it made sense for all the Jewish people to go into Jerusalem. 
Uh, Josephus tells us at that time, the population of Jerusalem ballooned to over a million people. But what did the Christians do? They did what was opposite. It seemed totally uh, contradictory of what you should do. They didn't go into the city. Instead, they listened to Jesus' instructions. They obeyed his commands. They didn't go and get their supplies or get their, their memorabilia or go back to their house. They went to the mountains, and they fleed to a place called Pella. And that's where they waited out this destruction. Here's the lesson, a tough lesson. There comes a time when it is right and good to abandon a situation, a place, and a people and let sinful people live with the deadly consequences of their sinful lives. Let me say that again. There comes a time when it is right and good to abandon a situation, a place, and a people. And you say, well, that's not Christian. That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. Look what Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, verse 11. This is the instructions he gives his disciples. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that place as a testimony against them. Acts chapter 13, this is the earliest church living out Jesus' commandments. Verse 50, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They shook the dust off their feet as against them and went to a different city. They left them. They abandoned them. And the disciples were not filled with grief over that. They were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. God blessed that decision. A woman came to her house years ago, middle of the night, I was serving at a different church, and she came in the middle of the night. She was frantic, frantic. She told us that her husband had just thrown her against the wall and put his hands around her neck. I asked her, I said, has this happened before? And she said, kind of, but not this bad. And I told her, I said, you need to pack your things, you need to get your kids, and you need to leave them. And she said to me what I've heard several times before. He said if I left him, he would kill himself. This is what I said. This is going to sound harsh. This is what Jesus is telling us. I told her, it said, if he does that, it is not your fault. There comes a time where you have to abandon a situation. You have to abandon a place. You have to abandon a people and allow them to deal with the negative consequences of their sinful choices. There comes a time where you got to shake the dust off your feet and go to another place. Parents, there may come a time where you must pull your kids from the public schools. Now, don't mishear me. I love public school teachers. I love them. I've got so much respect for so many administrators. Love them. In a lot of ways, a major blessing. And I've heard for years, if we take all the Christian kids out of the schools, there'll be no light in the schools. I've heard it. I understand it. But if gender confusion and sexual depravity and critical race deception, and school violence continues at a certain point, Christian parents, you have to learn to, 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 you're going to have to learn to prioritize your kids' physical, emotional, educational, and spiritual well-being, and you have to pull your kids out of the public school and let these people deal with the godless environments that they've allowed to take root. We got to understand that our kids are not equipped to be missionaries in such toxic environments. They're being influenced more than they're influencing. Now, when is that time? That's for you to pray between you and God. But there may come a time 
where that's the right thing, that's the good thing, that's the holy thing, that's the spiritual thing to do. May the Holy Spirit give us discernment to know when those times are. You see, in a lot of ways, the Christian fights by flight. We fight by flight. Christians fleeing from California right now, that isn't cowardice. It is judgment against a corruption and depravity that's existing there. It's taking away good citizens and honest tax dollars so that godless leaders have no choice but to clean up the mess that they've made. It's an act of war against wickedness when Christians withdraw their light from godless spaces. When we cancel our subscriptions to, to, to these godless corporations, when we boycott businesses, when we end friendships, when we stop giving our attention and our time and our money to these godless entities, these dark forces, they may be encouraged to change. So I've I heard recently uh, State Farm Insurance, and I have State Farm. They've been great to me. I love State Farm. I love it. And so they did something recently, which I think is a positive sign. Um, they had partnered with this agency called Gender Cool, and they were sending books either to schools or to families. The, school, the, the, the books that they're sending were targeting uh, early elementary. So we're talking about kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. And these books were books that were affirming transgenderism. It was talking, it was talking about subject matter that's entirely too mature for these little kids. It was, it was sexual indoctrination is what it was. So uh, this became public knowledge, and there was a pushback against State Farm. And what did State Farm do? They did the right thing. They, they stopped their partnership with this gender cool, and they apologized publicly for making this decision. When we, Christians, when we pull back support, when we speak against the godlessness, when we withdraw our presence, there's power in that to change culture. We need to understand there's a time and place for that. Sometimes in order to advance the kingdom of God, we must pull back. What would have happened if these Jewish Christians would have stayed in Jerusalem? If they would have said, I love the temple and I love Jerusalem. This is where my history is. This is where my lineage is. These are my people. I can't abandon. What would have happened? The largest population of Christians in the world would have died. For the sake of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom, it was right and good for them to let Jerusalem and the temple burn to the ground. It was right and good for them to flee to the mountains. It was right and good for them to prioritize their own people. Friends, I believe we're entering into another one of those seasons. We have a long-term vision here at Christ Church. We want to more and more be, develop a parallel society, a community in which you don't have to be indebted to the godless system of the world we're living in. Some of you uh, are in the public school right now. You'd rather homeschool, but you just don't think you can. Well, this, uh, this uh, fall, we're going to set up a Christchurch co-op, and we want to give you the resources. If this is what you desire to do, we want to give you the resources to make that decision. We want to help you with the onboarding. We want to help you with all the, the forms and stuff that you have to fill out. Amy Scaff is coordinate that. We've got men in our church who are building Christian businesses and hiring Christian men so that you can make an honest living without having to compromise on your Christian values. We're building a youth group so that your kids don't have to run the streets on the weekends, but they can develop and they can have great friends and make great memories within a Christian 
environment. We have brothers and sisters here who are political outsiders, but they're running for office here in our city because we can affect change in Winchester. And so they're going to try and bring the biblical values, the godly values from the outside in. We want to be a city on a hill. We want to be a community living life on a higher plane that the rest of Winchester looks up to us and aspires to be like us, aspires to be with us. And that can only happen when we disassociate ourselves, when we pull back from the godlessness that is in our world and we be the people and be the community that God has called us to be. Jesus told the Christians to flee. Thank God that they listened to his command. Verse 17, Mark chapter 13. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be the days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now. AD 69, the Romans came back. They pulled back AD 66. They came back AD 69, full force. They seized the city for about five months. Nothing in, nothing out. During that time, there was infighting among the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So you had primarily two groups of people. You had the moderates and you had the zealots. The moderates wanted to go to the Romans and they wanted to negotiate peace. The zealots wanted to fight the Romans. They wanted to destroy the Romans. So what happened? The zealots burned all the food supplies in Jerusalem. And then they killed all the moderate Jewish leaders. Because they wanted to force the whole population of Jerusalem, they wanted to put them in a corner where they had no choice but to fight against the Romans. Toward the end of five months, all the food in the city was gone. And so what was happening is these these people, I've heard it said nine days without food will start a revolution. I've heard it said that. These people went five months. And so you, you see what's happening Some of the most depraved, some of the most evil things you can imagine are taking place in the holy city. People are going into people's houses, kicking down the door, and demanding that they turn over whatever food they have. They're robbing each other. There's violence everywhere. It got to the point, Josephus records, it got to the point where women, like nursing mothers, were taking their babies, their youngest babies, and boiling them so that the rest of their kids would have something to eat. Imagine how terrible So what happened? Eventually, Rome breached the city walls, killed the men, women, and children, tore the temple apart, and burned the city to the ground. Josephus estimates one million Jewish people died in that year. The, The rivers ran red with the blood of the Jews. Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would have been saved, but he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. In comparison to most sieges, five months is really short. It wouldn't have been that short except for the zealots burned all the food, so they had no choice but to fight. Now, that actually served a good purpose for the Christians because if if the siege would have lasted a lot longer, the Roman army would have searched the area more carefully. They would have found the Christians and killed them in Pella. So this this was an act of mercy that God showed towards his people. Verse 21 then if anyone see, tells you, see the son, uh, the Messiah, see there, don't believe. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus says, don't believe anyone who claims to promise salvation. Because there's going to be false saviors and there's going to be deceptive spokesmen and they're going to present, present evidence to convince you to follow them. And so you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Zealots, you had 
all these different groups who are saying, we need to do this. No, we need to do this. And they, they all had a, a, a leader that was a charismatic leader who would say, no, follow me for salvation. And then they had spokesmen within their group who said, this is the guy that you need to follow. And then they would give all sorts of evidence to, to convince people to follow this person or this way of doing things. And so this is what Jesus is saying. There is only one salvation. There is ultimately only one solution. There is only one hope, and it is Jesus Christ. And so don't trust any way forward that isn't rooted in the truth of God's word. Otherwise, you will be led astray. You can't use godless means to accomplish a godly purpose. So Jesus is encouraging his people in Jerusalem to put all of their trust and hope in Christ alone. And here's the promise for those who put their trust and hope in Jesus. It is impossible for the elect, Jesus says, to be led astray. It's impossible for the elect to be led astray. Well, what's the elect? What does that mean? Verse 20, let's look at verse 20 again. It gives us a clue. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. Now, let's, let's pause here because this is kind of some weird like time stuff that's going on. AD 30, Jesus says this. He's talking about events that will happen in AD 70. So they're future events to Jesus. But what does Jesus say? What kind of language does he use? He uses past tense language. You see that? He says that God had not cut past tense, had not cut these days short. No one would be saved past tense. Isn't that kind of weird? How, why are you using past tense language to describe what's gonna, the events of a future uh, happening? What's going on here? God is, is eternal. He exists outside of space and time. He operates within space and time. So he's above space and time, but he is, he is intervening within space and time. So from eternity past, God saw everything that would happen in and around AD 70. And he orchestrated the events in such a way to show mercy to his children. Using the free will choices of autonomous creatures God accomplished his eternally good plan and purpose such that before the event even happens, the outcome is not in doubt. In a similar way, in eternity past, before you did anything good or bad, God eternally foreknew and eternally predestined that you would be saved. God chose that you would choose him such that before you made any free will choice to walk down any aisle and confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, the outcome of your salvation was never in doubt. Jesus looked into the future, and he saw all the persecution. He saw all the trials. He saw all the tribulations, and he made certain that his chosen people were not led astray, that they would not be destroyed. In the same way, from eternity past, God looked into your future. He saw all of your sins, past present, and future. He saw all of the trials and the tribulations that you would face, and he said, I will die for each and every one of those sins. I will forgive each and every one of those sins. I will wash away each and every one of those sins. Before you did anything good or bad, God saw you, and he said, there's an orphan, and they've been destroyed by this world. I am going to choose that person to be adopted into my family. Before eternity ever began, God saw all the mistakes that you would make, and he said, I'm going to choose that person to show my grace and my mercy to and bring glory to my name by saving them out of their sin, saving them out of their death, and bringing them to alive in Christ. Jesus left Jerusalem desolate, but he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. 
Jesus allowed the temple to be destroyed, but he will save you. The city was burned down. You will be raised up. Those who rejected Christ starved, but you will be provided for. They were led astray, but you will be guided. The self-righteous religious leaders, they all died, but you will live. Jesus walked away from Jerusalem, but his goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Verse 23, Jesus says, you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Jesus told his disciples in advance so that they would be watchful. Do not despair, he says, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. This is not the end. This is the beginning. It appears that the world is falling apart, but friends, actually the world is falling into place. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed so that God could build a new temple made out of living stones. You are the living stones. We are the new temple. So that, so that, People don't have to worship God on a holy mountain in the Middle East. Instead, now, all of us can worship God in spirit and in truth so that we can build a new city, a new holy city on a hill, the light of the world, a model community that's going to lead the world into a better and brighter age. Next week, I'm going to show you how the world isn't getting worse. It's actually getting better. We just have such a limited window. I'm going to show you that next week. But today, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus. Wait upon the Lord. You will not be ashamed. But understand, we can't just watch and wait. We must act. When the Christians in Jerusalem saw the armies, they had to physically come down off of their roofs and go to the mountains. They had to physically come up out of their fields and go to the mountains. They had to gather all their kids up, and they had to go to the mountains. They couldn't just wait there in Jerusalem, and Jesus was just going to star track them from one place to the other. They had to put feet to their prayers. We have to do the same thing. We have to have faith that God is working all this out for our good, but we also have to do good deeds in agreement with God's plan and purpose in order to see the fulfillment of that promise. We pray that revival will come upon our community and our state and our nation but we have to be the hands and feet of Christ. We have to be the mouthpiece of God that delivers the gospel that will bring salvation. We believe that the kingdom of heaven is in our future. Let us diligently work together with God to bring heaven down to earth right here and right now. Things don't have to get worse and worse and worse. The end doesn't have to be some fiery, dark, cataclysmic event What if instead of all that, God is actually, through all the trials, through all the tribulations, through all the pain, through all the problems, God is bringing his kingdom here to earth and that the world will increasingly look more and more like heaven and he has invited you to play a part in it. Let's take a different vision of the way history is gonna unfold so that we can be the people that God has created us to be. Father, thank you so much for your plan and your purpose. It doesn't make sense to us. Or we'd rather not have to see all the stuff that's happening in the news. We'd rather not have some of the politicians that we'd have. We'd rather not have some of the policies that we have. We'd rather not our school systems look the way they look sometimes. We'd rather not our neighborhoods look the way they look sometimes. But we know, Lord, that you are working all these things out for our good and for your glory. We claim that promise today. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see what you want us to do in that process. That you have a purpose for us in this redemptive plan that you have for history. So empower us today. Lord, convict us today to not just wait and watch, but to 
put feet to our prayers, to put deeds to our faith, so that we can bring about your plan and your purpose on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're gonna sing a song of invitation and a song of remembrance. In the back of the room, we have emblems, uh, crackers and juice. These represent the body and the blood of Christ. And it's a reminder today that no matter how bad things look, no matter how bleak, and no matter how much it looks like it's the end, understand that in Jesus' name, we're reminded that it's just the beginning. Be reminded today that death is not the end. Be reminded today that, uh, that evil doesn't have the final say. Be reminded today that there's power, there is victory over the darkness in Jesus' name. And so as you take those emblems, I pray that a spirit of optimism, a spirit of hope will take over you and that you will go out into this world with a renewed energy to serve God, a, a renewed hope that this world doesn't have to look like it looks and that you can play its part in making it better. If you're here today and you're carrying a burden that's too heavy for you to bear, I'll remind you of what Jesus said. Come to me, all who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. I remind you that Jesus called out to all those in Jerusalem who are about to go and undergo uh, trials and tribulation. He called out to the ones that he chose, and he said, I'm not going to let you be led astray. I'm not going to let you be destroyed. The same promise is true of us today. If you're here today and you're far from God and you're living a life of sin, listen to me. There is no salvation apart from Christ. I don't care how clever you are. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how strong you are. Your destiny is destruction apart from Christ. There is a great tribulation ahead in your future. And so I'd encourage you today. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is calling you by name. He's knocking on the door of your heart, and he's saying, come to me, and I'll save you. Come to me, and I'll wash you. Come to me, and I'll empower you. Come to to me, and I will seal you for the day of salvation such that you won't be led astray, such that you will be empowered to overcome all the darkness of this planet. So if you're here today, and that's you, will you please come and talk to me as we sing this song? Come.